0: Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. You may not realize this, but the behaviors that occur between The crate and the gate at any given dog sport trial really affect your success inside the ring. Unfortunately, these behaviors are not taught in most classes, whether online or in person. And that's why I've pulled together my webinar, Success from Crate to Gate. In the webinar, you will learn all of the things that I do and that I teach my students to do between the time that they open the crate and the time that they enter the gate. We're talking things that I call placeholder behaviors. We're talking loose leash walking. We're talking really sexy stuff like downstays. But we're also talking when and why giving your dog a lot of reinforcers outside the ring might be a good or a bad thing. I hope you'll join me. It airs live February 21st, 2023. And there's a link to sign up in your show notes. Of course, if you're a member of Patreon or the CogDog Classroom membership, there's a discount for you. So be sure to race over there before you sign up. See you there. In the current climate, in the field of dog training and behavior, there's a lot of discussion of omission. Trainers valiantly cry out about what it is they omit in dog training, and what I care about is what they actually do, not what they leave out. So from time to time on the podcast, I'm going to feature other trainers who work in the field, and we will discuss a case they consider resolved. I will ask them questions about their process, and I hope to showcase what dog training looks like through an applied lens rather than a theoretical one. Charlotte Hoberg, CPDTKA, owns and operates sit and stay training in Maryland. I know her from the internet and love watching her train her personal dogs on social media. We sat down to discuss a tricky board and train case she resolved. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Will you start by sharing your name and pronouns? My name is Charlotte. My
1: pronouns are she, her.
0: So Charlotte, I am really interested right now in talking to dog trainers who work kind of in the trenches every day with the clients who are just out in the field kind of doing the thing. Cause I get a little tired of talking about theory. I get a little tired of kind of pontificating to everybody. Like I want us to be talking more and more about what we actually do. And so for that reason, I asked you and I've asked several trainers to kind of share a recent case that we can just kind of jam about and talk about. So who is the dog that we are going to talk about today?
1: So we're going to talk about Tate. Um, He is currently five years old. He's a neutered hound mix. He's got kind of a bunch of things in his breed makeup, but hound is like the majority of what he has. We started working together when he was about two. So it's been about three years. He is a dog that had struggled with reactivity, overstimulation, inability to settle in the house was a huge one. And when he got frustrated, which was often he would often redirect on his owner or pretty much anyone who was near. He started out his life uh, in the shelter. So his first year was in a shelter environment. So a lot of those behaviors that he has are like super common that you see in like in the shelter dogs that have been there for a long time. And unfortunately also happened like when he was in really sensitive time of his life while he was developing. So like a lot of stuff that you see like leash biting, working up and all that stuff, that, you know, that's kind of all of the stuff he had. His owner uh, started out as long-term foster. So she got him when he was about a year and a half. She, I guess, works with that shelter and fell in love with him and brought him home. So that was about late 2019. And then I came into the picture about 2020, actually right when the pandemic hit too. So it was like a lot of things going on. They were set up with a lot of success initially. So She had a trainer on board that was doing kind of like private training, doing the best that she could. She did a lot of really good stuff. They also had a vet behaviorist that's local to us on board, and he was already medicated before coming to me. So he had a lot of really good stuff when we started, but she was still really struggling kind of just honestly with daily things. They live in a, I wouldn't even call it a suburb. It's a little bit more urban than suburbs, um, right outside of DC. And really not a lot of ability to kind of avoid triggers directly out in front of her house. And unfortunately, another thing that he had that was really difficult initially was an extreme aversion to car rides. So we had kind of like a bunch of things going on to start. He was difficult to live with in the house. She couldn't eat around him. She really couldn't sit around him. Um, He had to be pretty much away from her, or she had to be constantly doing something. And then outside of the house, it was hard because, you know, stepping outside of the house, he was triggered by dogs and sometimes people and joggers and stuff like that, but most mostly dogs. And then she also couldn't take him away from the house very easily because the car was a huge, big deal. So that was kind of where he started. And, you know, when they reached out to me, I do mostly board and train. And so it's kind of tricky because it's, a limited time that I have them. And, you know, thankfully she came with a trainer on board. So the trainer actually got to talk to me a little bit beforehand, but my goal was to hopefully get him to a baseline where we could work at distances that he was comfortable work on getting him basically used to a home life in an environment where I have a lot of control versus at her home where she, you know, was kind of struggling to create that nice baseline.
0: Okay. So First of all, God bless, because these cases, I've talked to so many colleagues about these cases where the dog lived in a shelter for a very long time, which never sets them up behaviorally for success. It's just, it's not a good situation for them. I think we can all agree that even the best possible shelter is not a good long-term situation for a dog. and. So many of the behaviors you described, the kind of overreactions to everything, the inability to follow kind of basic home cues that we take for granted. So often with our dogs, like just through life with a person, if a puppy is raised in a home with a person, there's a lot of things that they just kind of figure out that we take for granted that this dog had no reference for. Right. And then the redirection on the handler. I mean, that's fun. That's special.
1: <laughs> that's a little and extra. Ball dog. Like he's he's about seventy pounds. Oh my gosh,
0: he's big. That's yeah. really big. Boy, yeah,
1: yeah. Oh.
0: Okay, so you, the way that you work is primarily board and train. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so this guy was working with an in-home trainer with this person as well as a veterinary behaviorist, and they were not getting. Where they needed to get essentially is what I'm hearing basically. Yeah. Okay. And so you took him in. How long did you have him, or did you have him multiple times?
1: So I've had him a lot over the last three years, but the very first day was about three weeks. Basically, the way that I my goal when a dog stays with me, first of all, I'm not going to take a dog that I don't think will benefit from the stay. And the way that I was operating in 2020 is slightly different than how I do now. I do. I currently will only accept dogs that have done like a test night or a few nights to make sure that they can acclimate in my house and do well. What I used to do was basically like it's pending until he seems like he's good. And then we are actually starting. Right. So it's a little bit more formal now, but he actually did. He did really well in a new environment. And my goal was basically to give him the opportunity to work on his triggers at a distance and basically to kind of lessen the learning curve for her. One of the really big benefits to them being with me is one, it does give her a break. You know, she is having a lot of daily struggles um, in the beginning and that can make it just difficult to be motivated. It can be difficult to, you know, feel safe if the dog has, you know, severe behavior problems. And even though the trainer that was on board was doing a lot of really good things, you know, his owner was frightened of some of the stuff that he was doing so my goal is to try to lessen that learning curve a little bit, give the dog a decent amount of history of good stuff in a controlled environment. And then on handoff, basically I help them with the training plan that we devise. If they don't already have a train trainer on board, then I kind of will set them up with someone. But basically I do a lot of like help afterwards to make sure the dog acclimates and, and is kind of safe in the house with management as well as a
0: training plan. So you took Tate into your home. And where do you begin with a dog that has a hard time in the car, redirects if they become overstimulated, doesn't have any kind of basic understanding of house cues? Where do you personally begin with that situation?
1: Yeah, so with dogs like these, I do my best to try to schedule them as either the only dog or, Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe the only dog and there's another easy dog. But for him, it was just him during the time that he was with me, I have kind of like a space in my house. I mean, my house is set up for a bus business. So I have like a space for him. That's super quiet. He does not have to see dogs at all. Obviously the dogs have to be good with some level of confinement because they do have to kind of be on a rotation schedule. But day one was essentially, obviously he had to get in the car. We had talked to the vet behaviorist a little bit. He had event medication on board. I actually went and picked him up and we just kind of did a, you're walking in, you're going to go into the crate. The crate was really nice. It was a big crate. It had, you know, comfortable bedding in there. It was also covered because part of my suspicion going into this was that there was some sort of basically conditioned response. Either he had fear of being confined, which obviously is not the case. He had no problem with being confined. Or he maybe had car sickness or some physical discomfort that was making this difficult. So we did our best to make sure that he had the right amount of event medication on board. And he was a little nervous, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the end of the world for him to get to my house. And when we got there, we essentially did like this long food scatter in the backyard where we were just kind of, I was walking around with him and he's sniffing the yard. He was having a great time, like seeing where the dogs had been and eating the food and all that. So we had like a long time where it's just, hey, check the things out. I'm not gonna really ask anything of you. For dogs like this, I do generally have some sort of leash on them or dragging just for, you know, easy access to them. And then I always wear like, you know, things that are comfortable and safe, like jeans and clothes toed shoes, all that stuff. So giving them the chance to settle in, but then pretty much right off the bat, we're setting up a predictable routine. And generally speaking, and this is kind of what my plan was, and it worked moving forward. Every single moment of transition, we have some sort of speed bump in play. So like, you know, coming from inside the house to outside or coming from outside to inside, food scatters, or generally food scatters was a lot of the thing for like the first few days, but something that kind of slowed him down rather than bursting through a doorway or bursting through onto the next thing, getting so excited that we're doing that next you know, activity. Yeah.
0: And so I do in my life because my dogs yeah. are all crazy and <laughs> I love, I've never called it a speed bump. And I love that. That's, that's cool. really clever. That's great.
1: Yeah. So I have German shepherds, so it's like everything. Happens <laughs> yes. <a> <laughs> Yes. So that's, that's kind of how I think of it is like, it's just a moment in time that we're using to kind of slow down. And so we did a lot of that, like the first 48 hours, it was pretty much, you know, if he wasn't, and he did well confined. So that was really nice too. Like he could actually have a break in his little room, really when he's around people that really struggled with like the inability to settle. So anytime I would approach, we had like food scatters on board. Initially there was some mobbing and stuff, but you know, he got the hang of it pretty well. I did pair it with a word. So I used the word scatter. And so the great thing about that was I could open a door and say the word scatter. And rather than him going, Oh my gosh, where's your food? He actually would back up and kind of go, Oh, I know it's coming. So we did a lot of that. I also used treat and trains for like certain things. So like if I wanted to slightly separate it from my body, if he was a little bit too mobby, we did work on some treat and train stuff. So for, for some distance um, behaviors, as well as feeding stations. So I'll use like bowls or like a mat or something, and food will get tossed to those spots just to have them practice moving away. So we did a lot of that for like thresholds and transition times, right? So coming out of the front door was a big one. I do kind of a slightly different version of Super Bowls uh, the Unleash Games, yeah. And so we often will have like a bowl outside of a door. And so they come out and they go, oh, there's a bowl, and they have something that they can physically focus on. And sure. that way, rather than coming through the door and him going, oh my gosh, there's, you know, this whole big world out here. I'm so excited about everything. Turn around and then go, all this excitement's going to go on you. We had these like visual kind of reinforcement stations that I would use a lot just to help him like, you know, hey, you're going through this, focus on that. And we just did that every single time.
0: Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, you know, when we say the dogs exhibit behaviors like, frustration types of behaviors right we have to then kind of say well what is frustration well it's it's this it's this suite of behaviors that kind of show up when expected reinforcement is not delivered and so what he showed up kind of believing in his worldview is that reinforcement comes when this human shaped thing is here right and We see that a lot from dogs that live in isolation for a long time, like shelter dogs who are, their isolation is kind of punctuated with humans. And so then they're, you know, they become almost obsessive about the human shaped thing, which is why then they have a really hard time calming down and doing nothing when the human shaped thing is there, right? Because that is a source of reinforcement and what it sounds like you did, which is very clever is produced other shapes of things that are sources of reinforcement. You said, Hey, look, bowls happen, not necessarily just in a person's hand coming to your kennel. Bowls happen other places and bowls are still reinforcing to you. You said kind of feeding stations, like there are mats and I reliably will put food there on that mat for you to understand food is there. Yeah. Point two, when we were
1: starting out, almost all of his reinforcement was either placed on the ground or dropped on the ground in some way. um, Just because first of all, he would try to take food really hard. And that was something that she had struggled with anyway. And obviously some of that is arousal, but just as a general rule, eating on the ground is a lot better than, you know, going upwards when the dog is excited like that. And so we did a lot of making sure food happened on the ground, kind of away from up here. Mm -hmm. The more that he started getting upwards thoughts and feelings is when, Maybe he would try to grab a treat pouch or a leash or, you know, all those things. And so keeping it kind of food happens on the ground. Not only is that a calmer way for him to eat, but then it started creating a nice expectation where if he heard the reward marker, he kind of would like, you know, get that anticipation where he's like looking at the ground, like I know where it's coming.
0: Yes. And I love that. So you're setting up these really clear, predictable routes to reinforcement for him. When you said a minute ago that you set up a really solid routine, I want you to break that down and talk about that specifically, because I do think that different kinds of trainers think about that differently. For one trainer, routine could mean you don't have any agency or any freedom over your life. And then for another trainer, routine could just mean, well, I always feed you at this time of day from this bowl in this location, right? So talk to me about specifically what routine feels like and looks like for you.
1: Well, I am like the opposite of a type A person. So, you know, I don't have a daily schedule. It's not like hour one, hour two. It's always the same. Um, however, we do have a kind of a loose a loose daily routine that we follow, especially since I have my own dogs. And when they're kept separate from the other dogs, they they like feeling like they know what generally expected. So for a routine for a dog like Tate, when he was with me early in the morning, we go out for some sort of potty breakout in the, um, out in the yard, generally accompanied with some sort of food scatter. He gets a chance to go potty. He gets a chance to kind of just have a little bit of a moment to unwind. And I think of this as like their coffee time in the morning. Like this is when I like to sit down. I like to drink my coffee and check social media. That's kind mm-hmm. of what he's doing. And he gets a chance to also kind of check doggy social media because my dogs have peed. So he gets that chance to do that. Once he seems like he's kind of taken that nice breath, that's where we kind of go into, okay, so we're going to go inside and we're going to practice a little bit of subtle work. And that subtle work might be he's chewing on a bone or he's got a Kong or something like that. Or we're doing kind of what I started with him was conditioned relaxation work. So in the morning, we generally do some sort of you know, I want you to just relax, get your bearings, you know, sniff as much as you need to run around as much as you need to. But then I generally go into like some sort of training session that's slightly calmer. So initially we did not do a lot of hiking only because it was just difficult to get him out places a lot. So, yeah, so I had to like kind of mimic what he might be getting from a decompression hike or just like a sniffy walk of some kind. Thankfully, at the time, I also lived across from a school and it was during the pandemic. So it was open and that was where his sniffy walks happened. So generally speaking, he would come out, he would have his breakfast or part of it out in the yard. We would come in and we'd do some sort of settle work together. In the very beginning, it was a lot of you know, here's a bone, I'm gonna give you something to work on, and then intermittently feed him. Um, And we worked up to more just, you know, me feeding him during that subtle time, or a little bit more interaction with me, because that interaction in the beginning worked him up. But then we would go and do some sort of sniffy walk across the street. And in the very beginning, I actually didn't have him on a pretty short leash, I had him on maybe like 20 feet on a back clipping harness. And this was something that actually I did very quickly. Um, when she was walking him, she had him on a front clip harness mm-hmm. and he started getting frustrated and the leash was somewhat in the front. It became a very easy thing for him to go for when he got excited. Mm-hmm. Moving the back gave him more freedom of movement, but also like it was just less of a thing dangling in front of his face,
0: you know, and it yeah. gave him... I don't think... Sometimes with equipment that is restrictive like that, like a front connection, or even sometimes like a halty or gentle leader. Sometimes these dogs that are already wound really, really tight. Then you put this kind of restrictive device on them, and it, in my observation or my opinion, sometimes feels like now I'm giving them a sensory experience that they cannot deal with. It's That's like felt like, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. if I am stressed about something anyway. And then a piece of my clothing is bothering me. Like I am going to come, I'm going to just cuss out a person next to me. Like it's just, things are not going to go well. If like my bra strap keeps falling down and I'm also already upset or anxious or whatever about something. And I feel like this happens to them. Yeah, no, it reminds
1: me of those moments where you're having like a bad day and you're trying to get out the doorway and like your belt loop gets stuck on like the handle (laughs) and it. At the tipping moment. That's, that's what it was for him too. Like he would be maybe working up anyway, because he's outside with his person. Suddenly this thing's just in front of his face. And it was just a very easy thing to kind of put his frustration on So not to get too much into it, but basically my routine every day is some sort of calm work in the morning. Then we do some sort of exercise for him. It was the walk. We did like a nice long sniffy walk and then I will try to kind of just rotate basically that throughout the day. So we'll do some sort of like exploration of the yard, playing around if we can, just being a dog and then coming in and just setting the environment up to encourage some sort of settling and then just rotating that in with exercise as well. And like I said, for him, the exercise was kind of focused more on calm things. He was not initially at a point where we could do like hugging or flirt pole or like, you know, excited stuff. So it had to be like I want to make sure you're getting your physical energy needs met. Wow. But at this moment, we can't do it where it's like really exciting. Right. And so what I just wanted him to kind of get the hang of is when we were interacting, it was a positive experience. It should be something he looks forward to, but it was not going to be that like, you know, that extreme rush that he's looking for. Or it's not going to be a giant like event or exciting event every single time he sees me. And he's he settled in really, really well. I was actually pleasantly surprised how well he did. I think some of that, like, you know, coming from a shelter environment, I think he does handle being, you know, in a new environment better Mm -hmm. than other dogs would. But, um, it's also, it's also, I make a point to make it very like calm and quiet inside the house. So like my dogs aren't barking a bunch. He gets a chance to actually unwind and take a break, which honestly at the shelter and at his new home, He was not getting a lot of because when he was isolated in the shelter, there was other dogs, there's other things going on. This was a chance for him to actually have relaxation on his own and take a break from kind of everything, which I think really, really helped him.
0: Yeah, it almost seems like the first thing that you did, and maybe the first thing that you do for a lot of these dogs is you give them a little bit of like a stress vacation. Like you bring them in and the first thing you focus on is just welfare. Uh and bringing their welfare to the forefront and making sure that they are in a decompression heavy type of environment without a whole lot of triggering stimuli in the environment. You kind of give them a break. Yeah. Yeah. How long would you say it took him to start to be kind of, I don't know, trainable? For you?
1: So, I mean, I guess it depends on what your definition of trainable is.
0: <laughs> they can't see me, but I, I put up air quotes when I said yeah.
1: that <laughs> So, the first year, there was a lot of training that was happening in the background, but a lot of what he was experiencing and doing was more classical conditioning in the very beginning. But we had hints of like operant conditioning in there with like, obviously like specific marker words that we added in and in the house and on our walks when no one was around, we started to introduce like a U-turn cue or like a pull-off behavior or just, you know, pause and then eat those kinds of things without triggers around. But for the first year, a lot of it was kind of classical conditioning approach, especially if we were working around dogs on leash or in the house, it was a lot of, we would have training sessions, but real life was heavily managed. And then also like I said, just a lot of classically conditioning him to have the right emotional responses in those moments.
0: You just, I'm just going to interject, talk about that a little bit as far as, and I will right here, right now, vow not to get too deep in the weeds on classical versus operant conditioning because they're both always happening all the time. So talk about when you are making a choice to essentially i am putting this again in quotations, go classical on something. And I really think that when trainers say that, what that means is that they have reduced criteria to such a point that the dog is always going to get paid. So that is kind of how I think about it, but talk about why you would start there rather than immediately asking for behaviors or immediately trying to cue things in those situations.
1: So, so kind of to go back on what you had said earlier about like when you have a puppy that's uh, raised in a house with you, They start to understand like certain words might mean cues, right? Like it it has direction to them. One of the things that's difficult with a dog like him is like all word is stimulation. Any me talking to him initially was like just exciting. And when he's already in a moment where he is like, we're walking and he sees a dog talking can bring his attention back to me. But if he's not at a place where he has the skills to understand how to like respond to that, that may be just giving him an opportunity to look back at me. And then now the energy that he was maybe pointing at the dog is now coming to me. And so, yes, the criteria is very, very low. I try to make sure that we're having situations where we are working at a distance that he can stay curious, but he's not, you know, he's not gone, right? Like we can see a dog and I will just feed him and maybe make space if needed or You know, feed him periodically as he's watching, but I'm really not going to ask anything in that moment versus when I'm thinking more, more leaning operant conditioning. I would like to be able to say something that gives him a heads up about how that reinforcement might happen. So I guess I don't know if I'm making sense there. Ryan,
0: keep going. (laughs) Just keep talking. You're doing great. (laughs)
1: Um, When I'm thinking classical conditioning, I want to make sure that we are navigating like real life waters in a way that keeps that good experience happening, helps him have the emotional responses. I would like to see more of maybe some physical responses as well. Maybe if I lure him or or toss a treat away, but when I am thinking more operant conditioning, I would like that I have a cue or a marker word associated with those behaviors that then the dog can do and then get the behavior or get the Reinforcement.
0: Does that make sense? Does that answer that question? Yeah, so you're, and I think a lot of people think of it that way that you're kind of dividing it into where your focus area is yeah. for kind of for that session. And I do think that when you are trying to focus on kind of his experience and his feelings rather than trying to direct him, the differentiation. So it's kind of like over here, I am giving direction, even when it comes to the reinforcers. And over here, I'm I'm basically operating in what some people would call non-contingent reinforcement scenario and what other people would call classical conditioning and what yet other people would have other words for. And so I think that we are smart to be really generous with our reinforcement in those early stages to start to create the behaviors that we want to see kind of emerge from the fabric of this whole situation. And then when we start to see those behaviors emerge, we can then be selective about them. And so, and it, I mean, it's like teaching any behavior, right? Like, we're not like going to name any like, behavior.
1: That's right. Yeah. Name a heel until I have the like all the behavior together, right? But I might start shaping that behavior and creating the emotional,
0: you know, response. Sure, or like, if I'm teaching a retrieve, for instance, if you see the retrieval object, and you care so little about it, it could be invisible to you or even don't like it, kind of look at it and think that's probably something that you're going to beat me with because you do that all the time. <laughs> you know, like then that's the first thing I need to address, right? So a lot of it is just like, hey, look at this thing and like getting interest in the thing so that you can see reinforceable behaviors start to emerge yeah. from, from the situation. Yeah. So with Tate, you really zeroed in on like we're talking about just applying those reinforcers really liberally so that you're seeing desirable behaviors start to emerge.
1: Now something else happened in this time too. So while we were walking, you know, he's getting a lot more walking than I think he had been, or at least a lot more like free movement because he was on a longer leash. He had time in the yard as well. And pretty much right off the bat, I noticed he had kind of a weird gait Mm -hmm. and that was something that I kind of brought up to her, his, his mom. Um, And you know, he had had a full workup and when he got home afterwards, he actually did go and get checked up too, but they didn't see anything. They weren't concerned, but it, I come from the horse world and like, you, you see differences in gait right away. Like it's something that you're kind of like, it's in your head for and for me, it was, it was enough that I was, I kind of pushed her and she actually did go to a specialist and, you know, down the road, he had to get two knee replacements because he had, you know, serious things going on in the back. And that's something that we saw really early on. And so that was starting to kind of also piece together as well. Like, you know, moving was actually difficult for him going up and down the stairs was really a big thing where you would see it like more exaggerated, which then kind of also like, oh, okay. The car jumping into the car is hard. Or when you're on a walk and you see dogs, like that pain definitely was something that, you know, we noticed early on and has actually been a huge theme for him kind of through the whole thing. And so that was also a point, not just, you know, his, his history in the shelter and the actual learning to be a dog, but now he's also dealing with
0: some sort of pain as well. So, so common, right? How yeah. often does that happen to you? Cause it happens to me more than not, like more than not, well, there's something physical going on with the dog.
1: The amazing thing that happened in this situation that doesn't always happen is like, it was pretty minor looking to like the average person right. and her already said it was fine it um, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Most often with the pet clients I have, I can push and push, but at the end of the day, it's not my dog.
0: And not your dog, I, and you're not the veterinarian. So yeah. it, your hands are tied yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah.
1: <laughs> For the vet either. Like, I don't, if, if a vet says something, I'm not going to be sitting here saying, you know, they're wrong. But oftentimes I will just kind of reiterate, I saw this. I'm really concerned. These kinds of things can, you know, create a negative impact on your dog's training journey. And so she thankfully took it really seriously, ended up taking him to a specialist. And, and then he ended up kind of going down a long road of getting one knee and then the next later on. But yeah, like for him, the, the pain, and like I said, it was a theme throughout like the last three years that I've been working with them. Anytime he had some sort of physical ailment, which was a lot, and I can go over all of them, but it made his behavior 10 times worse. That's something that I think gets overlooked, especially with something like board and train where it almost, it's easy to get into your head that they're here for a limited amount of time. I need to train them and get them to a point and get, you know, know, and get results. Like I know a lot of people feel pressured for that. And I thankfully don't, and I have it in my contract that like, I don't have a guarantee for results for that reason, but you know, she was super, super open to, you know, kind of working with those physical limitations and um, addressing them as well. So that was really, really helpful.
0: That's really good. And with the, so you mentioned that the dog had a lot of health concerns, which again, really, really common for these dogs that seem to have everything going on. Like they don't want to ride in the car, they're reactive at stuff. They can't calm down in the house. Like I usually find that those dogs also don't feel well. Yeah. And like you mentioned it's it can be intermittent they can start to feel better because something is being addressed and and something else can kind of go wrong and I think it's really important for us as professionals to then have that really powerful kind of triangular relationship between us and the client and the veterinarian because we have to all three work together it is so common that these dogs have physical concerns when they have these behavioral concerns.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so Okay. He comes he comes in your home, you give him kind of a decompression vacation. You start to address a lot of his behavioral concerns really through just targeted application of reinforcement, whether that's in the home teaching him that the human shaped thing is not to be, you know, jumped at and pushed at. That's not how we get paid. But you do get paid this myriad other ways, and it's easy for you. Starting to address some of his reactions to triggers in the environment, starting out with a classical approach or non contingent reinforcement approach, and going deeper and deeper into kind of trained behaviors. Talk to me about. I love hearing about your equipment choices whenever you have those choices. So I love that the switch to the back connection harness for him was really powerful. When you transferred him back to his person, maybe the first time you mentioned that you had him multiple times, do you want to talk a little bit about what that looked like and how, how kind of successful she has been with carrying on what you've done? So
1: First of all, before he comes home, he, they have to have some sort of management in the house. I want to make sure that she can basically have livable spaces in her house that she can be safely away from him and also make sure that there are spaces that he can be comfortable and basically setting them both up for success where they can have almost protected contact. And so that's what we did initially. She did get a treat and train right away, um, which was fantastic. And Initially it was a little bumpy for her, but she kind of started on the first homework that I had for her, which was two separate types of relaxation protocols. And I do follow just like the the Karen overall and the really real relaxation ones Mm -hmm. only because it's really easy for me to send that information to clients. Mm -hmm. I kind of do like a hybrid version of those things, but both of those, I had her practice in the house um, where she could have sessions where we did just settling, right? It's not a stay. It's not any of that. But then she also did some map stay work, not for long periods of time. This isn't something where I was having her just have the dog on the spot, but I wanted her to be able to do training in the house. I wanted her to have interactions that were slightly calmer, um, where he could start to build some sort of impulse control in a safe way. And then, like I said, we had some sort of barrier uh, in play that kept her safe. So either he had a leash dragging or a a gate or something, or both. He was not at this point muzzle trained, but that is something that has come, you know, kind of with the time, like working with them uh, over a long period of time. And then we also, before she, actually before he went home, we kind of discussed like anti-nausea meds. Um, Initially I was just using Dramamine with him, but then she ended up, I think she got something specific at some point, but initially it was just anti-nausea stuff. And while he was with me, we did work up two car rides and we had basically two pictures for him. One was a have to, and one is a choice. So in a situation where like, if he had to go to the vet, for example, and it's like, we have to go today. We basically had a thing where like You know, we just grab walk and he goes in. And at that point, it was so bad for him that it was like, you know, we're torturing him getting in there. And before we did those have-tos, if it's something that she could plan for, she had a medication she could give him and would make sure that he had the anti nausea stuff on board as well. And then we had the a different picture, which was basically like, Hey, we want to go on a walk. Let's, you know, can you do this today? And those situations are generally more like he's on his harness, he's on the leash, and I might be asking things of him rather than just walking like there's a conversation
0: happening. Yeah, talk a little bit about that's absolutely the same choice that I would make. Talk about why you want to offer both a choice and no choice scenario with the car. Yeah. So this is definitely an
1: argument people will come up with. I mean, you see it more often with like cooperative care, where people will be like, "Well, what if I have to do it? Like, I have right. my house is burning down. I need to get the dog in the car."
0: <laughs> it um, always has to be the most dramatic. Yeah, <laughs> thing
1: it's always like the end of the world is happening. What do I do? And so I really want to make sure that those moments look very different from a training scenario. And for me, all training is a conversation. There are questions being asked and. I think I've definitely heard you say it before, but when I'm asking a question, like I I should be prepared to get a no. And so what I don't want to do is have a dog that already has a very low frustration tolerance or an owner who is not as confident dealing with those frustration bursts. What I don't want is that she asks that question. He says no. And then she goes and says, well, no, you actually have to go in
0: because those are or or she gets really, she's like, please, (laughs) yeah, <laughs> please yes. um, <laughs> try to lure him in with some food, like just as insidious yes. as then forcing. Yeah,
1: and he was really good at those moments in a bad
0: way. <laughs> He's like, I know you. I know yes. all about you people.
1: But what do you actually have though? Like, right, sit right. Or show him. And so having those pictures be really, really different not only helped with his frustration tolerance. Right, like if I'm just walking you and I'm not, I'm you know, what's going on. This is very, again, it's a predictable moment. I'm just going to walk you in. Um, I often will have food in there, but I'm not going to be using food to get them in there. Right. So like there might be food after he goes in, but it's not going to be something that's luring him in. If that makes sense versus if I'm asking for behaviors, then I want to make sure that session is set up in such a way that I have the amount of time he needs in that moment to be patient. If he's going to say yes, So I'm not rushing him. And then I can also basically respect that. No, and go back inside if that's the case. So it's something that I implemented when he was with me that she was able to use as well, but also with the anti-nausea meds on board. And, and eventually he had some, I know he had some pain meds for a short period uh, period of time and then his knee was getting fixed. The interest to go in the car got so much better.
0: Yeah. Certainly jumping into the car would have been very hard to do. But also when they're in pain, they don't like to be in the car because they can't, because it hurts them to be kind of jostled around. Like they can't stabilize themselves if they've got some kind of orthopedic thing like that. So that's, that's really interesting that that got so much better.
1: It was, it's night and day. And so she was able to implement that. Another thing that I found out while he stayed with me is that he really struggled in the evening versus in the morning. Um, This is something that she was aware of as well. And so for the, very first bit, my goal again, is to make sure she's safe, make sure she's confident. He's building the right experiences. Most of the training walks and, you know, outdoor stuff happened in the first half of the day. And then in the evening, it was more about indoor work and not really going out because he's much more reactive in the evening. And all of this would not be doable, by the way, without the medication on board. And that is something that also she worked with the vet behaviorist over this you know whole time. At, at every point where they were struggling, they were able to talk to her, make sure he was physically safe, um, physically healthy um, and adjust as needed, um, which is, I think, one of the hugest reasons that he could actually go and be successful in her home. Because what also makes this difficult is he actually wasn't officially owned by her.
0: This so you is actually you were working with her when he was still a foster. Oh, man. Um, yeah.
1: And so this is what makes it kind of tough. If anyone has ever done like shelter, like shelter work, when I'm evaluating a dog that's not owned by anyone, my, my approach and my opinions and my prognosis may be different versus if it's a dog that has a, an established problem. At this point, she had had him for like six months and she was very, very dedicated The rescue or shelter. You know, I think it's a rescue. (laughs) Um, They were very willing to put the money and time into him as well. So there was a lot of good things. For him, you know, they were very willing, they had the time, they had the resources. The other thing that made it really helpful was he actually is a very friendly dog. You know, he is not an aggressive dog. Um, even though he has these poor ways to, you know, cope with himself and at his core, he's actually a very, very social dog or socially appropriate dog. Like he's very good with pretty much anyone. And so those are things that, you know, helped him. And then the fact that he was so receptive to the short amount of time that he was with me, those were all things that helped like kind of paint a picture of success for him moving forward. I don't know if that actually answered your question.
0: <laughs> yes, you did answer the question. And then we went, and then you went deeper. And that's great. So you transferred him back to his person. She, at some point in here, decides she's adopting him.
1: Mm-hmm. Actually, so that's very recent too.
0: Okay. So then the majority of the time that you guys work together, he was a foster.
1: Yeah. And so okay. the, the rescue to technically own him. She made a lot of, it sounds like she was able to make a lot of choices for him. But thankfully, I think the really great thing about that was, is that the resources she had to help him out was a lot more than if she was on her own, which I think, is. but yeah. And then when he, when he had his knees replaced, he then had a huge infection resulting after that. And then he had skin infections and he had, what's that?
0: I said, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Of course he did.
1: (laughs) He hurt a a back molar, which then spread to other ones. And he had to get all of his teeth taken out or all his back teeth taken out. Like he has had, it was, it was like, you'd see the light at the end of the tunnel for him. And then it was like his body would be like, what else can I throw at you? And, you know, bless her heart. She worked through all of it. She's super patient and, you know, did all the things that she needed for him. But I would say like in the last year, his physical health. Was kind of taken care of, and we had kind of some changes that started to happen when that was adjusting. In addition to having management in her house and and making sure that we, to the best of the ability of where she lived and and what we could deal with in the home, was preventing those you know bursts from happening, right? And and just you know changing what times of day she took him out and and all that. So when we started to get when when we started to get to a point where his physical health was getting under control. That's where he was starting to able to do things like, you know, do a look at that game when he saw dogs or offer behavior without having to be kind of micromanaged or, you know, basically directed in the right direction. And he also over this time did a lot of like work with my dogs initially. And then with some other dogs that, you know, I know very well that are, are nice. He got a chance to work at a distance with them and do like worked up to actually playing and being loose with them, which he was in the shelter for most of his puppyhood. And I think he had like one playmate, but he was not properly socialized. So given that, again, he had kind of inward goodness, (laughs) being able to help him, you know, work through that. He actually, he wanted to interact and he actually got to a place where he can, he can meet new dog friends. He likes hanging out with dogs. It's obviously not a necessity, but He's been able to also navigate around dogs and be able to communicate rather than just, you know, kind of freak
0: out. Would you say so? He had like dog directed reactivity, we might label him as having, yes, but it feels like it comes from almost the same place that his behavior towards humans comes from, which is like, who look a source of reinforcement? I don't know how to control myself around this source of reinforcement. So, through kind of getting his behavioral. Health, his physical and mental health kind of under in a more managed place, you were able to offer him kind of some remedial socialization opportunities and let him learn to interact and be with his own kind. There are a lot of people, Charlotte, who would really push you on, and when I say a lot of people, This this is not me because I think that you know that I really, really find that reactive dogs benefit from remedial socialization most of the time. A lot of people, though, would really push you and say that allowing him to have that reinforcement, that play with other dogs, is actually just kind of causing, you know, feeding that fire and making that problem worse. So talk about your choice of allowing him those things and kind of when you felt like it was a good idea to allow those things and what we saw the outcome as?
1: So um, I mentioned like I'm in a place that I am very fortunate. My whole career is doing this. And so I get a chance to really, every interaction when the dog is with me can be super controlled. I can make sure the distance is a a distance that they can handle. I can make sure the dog is a dog that I can maybe hope (laughs) that it's a dog they can handle. So I try to do this at a distance where, again, the dog notices the other dog, but it's not so intense that the dog is starting to pull or starting to react or have a, you know, negative, you know, negative behavior that appears in those moments. So like, I want to start at a place where the dog can see the other dog, but we can do other things. And it may not happen in that session, but over time, over a lot of time, (laughs) My goal is to then work up to you know those dogs being slightly closer together, but we're still maybe like walking and sniffing or following treat trails or something like that, where the dog is there, but it's really not the main focus. And then I also want to make sure that the dog that I'm using as the helper dog is comfortable, that they're not you know being put in a place where they're they really don't don't want to do that. So it's it goes both ways. I want to make sure that the dog that I'm training is comfortable during the whole process. And then the dog, my helper dog is also. And so usually what happens is if I take the time that the dog shows me and that's, that's, you know, you want to look for loose, neutral body language. I don't want to see a lot of leaning towards that other dog. I don't want to see sticky, you know, behaviors from that dog. If all of those, you know, boxes are being checked and I'm able to start moving forward generally speaking we don't have huge displays of frustration bursts and again using a dog that i know is not going to like stare at him or bark at him um, who can make good choices with a handler that's also confident in my experience i may have like a moment here and there of a hiccup but by and large the dog is actually starting to learn that he can navigate the environment that he can take information from the other dog, maybe sniffing, maybe glances, but we're not staring. And by the time we get close enough, and usually how I try to do that is I will slowly start to have a parallel, but then rather than having them continue getting closer, really, you know, side by side, I will often have the helper dog go up ahead so that the dog behind, again, at a distance that we're not being frustrated to try to follow, that they can start to smell after them. We might be smelling bushes or trees as they're walking. And eventually they get up close to each other and any close interaction initially is pretty brief. Um, I try to make it so like, Oh, we, we happened to sniff. And then now we're going a different way. And I kind of keep it like short and sweet initially. But by the time that I introduced Tate to Pax, which is my, my own dog, he was the first dog that he was introduced to during this process. It was like such a non-event. They kind of, at one point they kind of realized like they were together and it was like a sniff and they were like, huh, okay. And and yes, I do agree. Like if you have a dog that's frustrated reactivity or honestly pretty much any reactivity where they're trying to seek interaction because it's not always good frustration. If you then let the dog charge up to another dog and interact and then have a rewarding experience in that way, absolutely you're going to make it worse but if you can teach the dog just like any other behavior this is how you can interact with that other being like this is this is the appropriate way to do it and when you get there if the dog is like then oh hey I actually do want to interact with this then you just do it at small you know bite-sized chunks and if you're doing it at small enough pieces and if you're a competent enough dog handler or trainer you can also start to read like Moments where it looks like it's too much for the dog or he needs a break or, you know, like those are things that I think get easier to navigate the more that you do it. And again, having a good helper dog is like the best thing in the world for those moments. So I don't think it's a bad thing, even for dogs that don't want to interact. I don't want to go too much into it, but I was kind of anti this initially, but like with Bayo, my, my shepherd, he doesn't love other dogs and he's never going to love other dogs.
0: We've done. I that. mean, that's so surprising for a working oh, line shepherd. It, <laughs> he's
1: a lot of ways, but we've done a lot of that work, and he's been able to like hike off leash with my friends' dogs. He's been able to. We've had dogs rush him, and he's been able to navigate those situations.
0: Handle himself, yeah, yeah,
1: and and we saw the same thing with Tate. He started to get to where I could have my other dogs you know, interact with him. And then eventually we had other client dogs walking with him and he, he was truly enjoying himself in those moments. And so it's not like he was being pushed into a situation where I don't want to be around dogs and I'm forced to, he got the opportunity to, to interact with those dogs in a way that he started to learn what was appropriate and how to, how to get to interact with those dogs, if that makes sense.
0: Yes. And I think that, you know, being allowed to interact with other dogs for dogs who are kind of hypersocial or frustrated in their reactivity. I think that it's the same as the food-based frustration stuff that he was having. What yeah. are you going to do? Gonna feed him? <laughs> no, you're going to feed him. You're going to yeah. do it in really structured ways. so that he fully understands how to access food. You are going to immediately cut off reinforcement for the behavior patterns you don't want to see, but you're not going to do that by trying to correct the current behavior patterns. You're going to do that through your antecedent arrangement. And you did that with other dogs as well. Once he started to demonstrate that he was capable of doing that. And I find that to be really, really enormously beneficial it sounds as though you you obviously went to a lot of different places with this dog which you needed places meaning metaphorically like in your in your training which you needed to because he showed up with a lot of things and <laughs> metaphorically and actually re, in real life you went a lot of places and had him you had him back multiple times over the course of kind of his fostered time with this person so Talk about kind of where Tate is now and like what resolved looks like for him.
1: So this is one that like, I'm going to get emotional. Cause like, because of the boarding training setup, I do want people to have long-term success, but I don't necessarily get to take part in that long-term success. A lot of people are outside of my service area. And so my goal is to get them started And then I will pair them usually with someone who's local or behaviorist if I can, and just set them up for success down the road. And it, I often get a lot of feedback that, you know, my dog's doing great still. And it's like years later and it's awesome, but I don't get the chance like I did with him to have them like a lot (laughs) over the course of life and stay in touch with the trainer that he has. And so one of the great things is, so she had a few goals. Uh, She wanted to be able to introduce him to her sister's dog. He's a bulldog and not very interested in other dogs. And she was really nervous about this, but having him around family was important and she could manage it if it wasn't a possibility, but it was something that she kind of, she wanted to be able to do if it could happen. So they did actually introduce them they have been buddies it sounds like they do great just kind of ignoring each other and doing their own thing and so she was able to introduce him to her sister's dog as well as her um her private trainer's dog as well so that when he went home she was able to continue that and they had success with that so he's met a few friends when he went back the other thing that was really big she could not eat food in the house with him at all like he had to be away she couldn't just sit down on the couch she could not just eat food To this day, she can just sit down and eat food and he's great. Like he, I think it's very minimal management in the house. The last time I went to her house, she's got like a baby gate in the um, kitchen and that's it. Normal.
0: that's like a normal house.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Able to just, just live her life in her house without having to worry about him too much. And it sounds like, I mean, she still does. Like he gets enrichment stuff during the day and she does reinforce those behaviors, but it's reinforcing those behaviors. She's not having to constantly be building a behavior or, you know, restructuring her house to, to have those behaviors be present. Like he's, ah. he's able to, it. She's able to walk him in the neighborhood. And she told me in September of 2020 was the one year mark of him not redirecting onto her. Cause that was another thing he loved to do when he, or when he had those reactions, when he was out on a walk, she was often like, Kind of the punching bag that was close by mm-hmm. and in the, well in the house if he got worked up he would start biting up on her and so as of september 2022 2022 wow that was one year without any redirections and it's still going strong and then the last three years pretty much every single holiday um, that she had he had to stay with me this last christmas he went up and stayed with her she went to her family you know, i think her parents house and he was able to come for the holiday and hang out with them. He is super easy to be around. Like anytime that he has had to stay at my house, cause I'll take him if she like goes out of town or something, I really don't have to do much. He can hang on the other side of a gate with a lot of other dogs on the other side. He can see them. He's not barrier reactive anymore. He can chill with the dogs that he's friends with. And I can just, I mean, I could just sit with him and, and relax and he's fantastic. She has done some muzzle training, but thankfully has not had to use the muzzle. Um, she also has started some nose work stuff. So she's, and the biggest thing that she was like gushing about is she's actually able to do what we think of as training, right? Like, you know, teaching him tricks, teaching him behaviors that previously just teaching a behavior was just too frustrating for him. And she just couldn't, she couldn't do it. And so we've started to do like, he learned to do like a pivot bowl. He's learned how to, um, yeah, no, he was, he's really awesome now. He's been able to do behaviors when he's out on walks. Like if he sees a dog, he can sit, he can, you know, he can think through that and respond. Like he doesn't just go straight into the stratosphere. So I would say, I mean, it's the best thing ever when I have a dog like this, who like, I didn't hear from them over the holidays. Like they didn't, they weren't reaching out for, you know, help anymore at that point and it's like those are the best the best things because it's like it's going well, they don't need that, you know, extreme amount of help anymore. And every time I reach out, it's like, you know, he's still doing great. So, I would say that he's he's pretty firmly resolved at this point. He's also almost 5, so he's also at a place where he's like he's physically and mentally mature. So, you know, fingers crossed like this is kind of where it, Starts to even out a little bit more. So, if I have a dog that's having success at this age, I feel pretty good, obviously, barring any other physical things with him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you made a really huge difference in this dog's life. And I really appreciate you going through it and talking to us about it. So, thank you so much for explaining all the ins and outs. It sounds like it was complex and very. Uh, Multi layered and interesting. So I really appreciate your time, Charlotte.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. This
0: is great. That was it for my first Trainer Showcase episode. Huge thanks to Charlotte for being my brave first guest. You can find Charlotte on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Sit and Stay Training and on TikTok at Dog Trainer Charlotte. Her website is sitandstaytraining.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash CogDogRadio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.